Welcome to Living Free Today, a ministry of Cornerstone Fellowship in San Lorenzo, California. These podcasts are the weekly sermons of Dr. Michael L. Wilson. Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is doing some rapid fire or in quick succession miracles. And Matthew kind of groups them together to show us some things about Jesus. And in Matthew 9, starting in 32, we see that it is a continuation of 27 through 31 where Jesus healed two blind men. Jesus came to Capernaum after going across the Sea of Galilee and when he landed, everybody wanted his attention and after he healed Jairus' daughter and healed the woman with the issue of blood, he started to head toward somebody's house for the night. And two blind men followed him and followed him insistently, shouting the whole way. When he got to the house, he let them in. They got entrance into the house and he healed them of their blindness. Then in 32, it says, as they were going away. Now, one question you can ask, and many commentators for 2,000 years have asked this question. Who are the they? Did Jesus clear out the house? Uh, And the sense is that he did not because it says that he continued to heal uh, all who were sick. And so early church tradition, now early church tradition is not scripture. Scripture is inspired by God. But you read through the Bible and you have disciples like Matthew and Mark and John and John, for example, had a very famous uh, disciple. Disciples have disciples who have disciples who have disciples. And you are here today as a believer in Jesus Christ because somebody discipled you and told you about Jesus Christ. And so John's disciple was known as Polycarp, which people call a plastic fish. But Polycarp was a great church leader, and he wrote a lot. He wrote a lot about tradition, and one thing he wrote was the they were the blind people who were not blind anymore, that they finally made it into the house, Jesus healed them, and so they went their merry way praising God about all the stuff they had done. Then it says a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. So there is this man who was outside, who somebody brought in to Jesus. And early church tradition said the blind men who are now sighted are so into Jesus, so excited about Jesus, that they knew this person because small town, you know everybody. They grabbed him and they drug him into the presence of Jesus. This person was mute, which means he could not speak. Okay, and he's unable to speak was not due to a disease or an accident or a birth defect. It was due to a demon possession. Now, most of the 
uh, demons that Jesus casts out, most of the demons that Jesus uh, exorcises out of people are very talkative. They explain and, and, and explain back to Jesus that he is the Holy One of God. They call him the Son of God. Uh, they give him all the praise because they know who he is. They know who he is more than we know who he is because the first thing they saw when they were created was Jesus Christ. And then here he is on earth standing right before them. This demon-possessed man said nothing because the demon was a mute demon. We do not know, you know how this all works, but the demon kept him from speaking. The word for mute is a word that can mean all sorts of ailments, and so some commentators say that he was also um, he was deaf and dumb, okay? He was unable to hear and unable to speak. All we get from this passage is it's focusing on his inability to speak. And so Jesus cast the demon out and he began to speak. And we do not know how he did it. This is a very short miracle. In fact, the space given to this miracle is the shortest in all the New Testament, but it is still here for a reason. And we will look at what that possible reason is. And so this person was brought, he was dragged perhaps, he was told to come, he was grabbed by his arm and moved into Jesus and Jesus uh, healed him and the people marveled, it says in 33, and the demon had been cast out and the crowd marveled. The word for marvel is astounded, is speechless, is they have no response. This is, you know, mouth wide open about what is going on here and how this particular exorcism took place. And their response is, never was anything like this seen in Israel. What are they talking about? Why would they say something like this? People... Uh, you know, probably in their teens, 20s, 30s, so they haven't lived forever to see every miracle that has ever happened. But if you're a Jewish person in the time of Jesus, if you're a Jewish person practicing today, then you have the Passover. And if you have the Passover, a story is read during the Passover meal, and that story is the story of the Exodus. It's the story of Moses going to Pharaoh and saying, let my people go as it was in the movies, okay? Now, how did Moses pull this off? How did God use Moses to get the people out of Egypt? Well, anybody who is slightly aware of their Bible or a Cecil B. DeMille movie knows that there were ten plagues. Okay, ten plagues that Moses brought upon the Egyptian people and the Jewish people over there in the land of Goshen were not touched. Okay, so the gnats and the hail and the darkness and all these things did not happen over here. They only happened to the Egyptian people. And these miracles, these plagues are recounted once a year during Passover, and Passover is the reason because the 10th plague 
was the death of the firstborn. And Moses said the way that you become immune to the death of the firstborn is you sacrifice a lamb and you put the blood on the doorpost of your house. And when you put the blood on the doorpost of your house, when the angel of death comes and sweeps through Egypt, it will pass over your house. And so a meal, an annual celebration known as Passover came into existence. And the point of Passover is to remind the Jewish people how God rescued them from the Egyptian captivity. And there are ten plagues, and I have met Jewish people who participate in these things, and they can recite the ten plagues in seminary for a test. I had to recite the ten plagues in order. They have kind of skipped away the order in my mind, but I knew them at one time. The idea that This is what God can do. I'm thinking about what God can do. And if I'm a Jewish person in the time of Jesus, the first thing that's going to come to mind is ten plagues. And they are this, 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 and this, and this, culminating in the Passover. And so they're they're looking at that and they, they realize that Moses was a long time ago. Moses started or inaugurated the Jewish people, the people of Israel. And so that's a long time. Nobody alive at this time except Jesus knew Moses or could talk with Moses or could get these stories. But they knew that these things had happened and they're looking at Jesus and his rapid-fire variety of miracles, a lot of healing, a lot of uh, demon possession casting out, He calmed the storm a couple times. He's doing a lot of things and people are looking at that and saying, okay, in my mind, I know what Moses did. I know the stories and I'm looking at Jesus and he's trumping Moses by 10 times, 20 times, 100 times. So other people would say, yeah, but what about Elijah and Elisha? They came after Moses, after the kingdom had split And they were sent to judge and pronounce judgment against King Ahab. God had sent a drought to punish Israel for their sin, for their idol worship. And God sent Elijah to announce the uh, drought to King Ahab, to tell Ahab that this is what's happening and this is why it's happening. And this story is in 2 Kings And Elijah did a variety of miracles. He was the greatest miracle worker since Moses until Jesus. It is considered, you count them up. He did some resurrections and he did multiplication of food and he culminated his ministry by getting all the false prophets to the top of Mount Carmel. And then had a contest of which God, Baal, or the one true living God, was going to uh, answer. And Baal, of course, didn't do anything. And God sent fire down from heaven and consumed the uh, water and the uh, sacrifice and all the stones and left a little crater where things used to be. God proving that he is the one true living God. And so these sorts of things 
are in these Jewish people's minds when Elijah left and was taken up by the chariots of God. His power was transferred to Elisha and God began to use Elisha to alleviate the suffering of Israel during that time. Eventually, Elijah passed away and God's power was on him so strongly that somebody fell into the grave where Elijah's bones were. Uh, no, a dead person was accidentally dropped in the grave where Elijah's bones were, and that person came back to life. So God was even using the bones of Elisha to alleviate the suffering. And so people are looking at this and saying, yeah, I got stories, I got this whole book full of miracles and people who did miracles, and I'm looking at Jesus right here, and he's doing more miracles, okay? The quantity of miracle is more than any other person in the history of the Bible. The quality of casting everybody out, of healing every disease, of healing every sickness, of not saying no to anybody, the quality of it, the person, the woman who just touched his robe and was healed, the people who let their friend down from the roof and Jesus healed them, the, the, just this whole thing is just amazing to them and they literally mean nothing like this has ever happened in the history of the world and if you look at the Gospels and what Jesus did, and then look at any other history book or look at your life and what you know, look at the things that are happening, there is no comparison. Jesus Christ, as a worker of miracles, beats everybody. And you say, well, why? And the answer throughout the book of John especially is to validate his message. His message is the kingdom of God. And so in 34, after he cast out the demon-possessed person, the Pharisees are there. Now the Pharisees get the same message that everybody else is getting, that this guy is doing a lot of miracles, and he's doing good quality miracles. He's doing miracles that last. There are people that have been uh, healed and such early in the Gospels, and Pharisees kept tabs on them. And they're still healed. If they're unable to walk, several uh, of those sorts of miracles, the Pharisees actually call them in and challenge them and say, you know, what's going on here? And how did this happen? And are you a, you know, anti-God person for being healed? And so the Pharisees are trying to disprove Jesus by the miracles, and they cannot do it. They cannot say he's a faker. They cannot say he's a charlatan. And they don't throughout Scripture. They just say he's a false teacher. But the idea that his miracles don't work, that it's a show, the Pharisees are unable to prove. And so they say in verse 34... The Pharisees said he cast out demons by the prince of demons, okay? Instead of attacking the miracles, instead of attacking uh, what Jesus is doing, they now attack his motivation. Jesus says he is from God, 
And they're saying, well, we can discredit him by saying he's from Satan. Now, this happens twice in the book of Matthew. In this particular passage, Jesus just ignores them. He does not say anything. But in Matthew 12, they, they pull this off again, that he casts some demons out. And the Pharisees say it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demon, uh, demons. Beelzebub was the god of the, of the Philistines. Remember Goliath and the Philistines? The Philistines had a god, and their god was Beelzebub, which the Pharisees understand is demonic, uh, is a demon, in fact, a very high-ranking demon. And he says, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. And Jesus says, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself, how then will his kingdom stand? And so this response is given to the accusation that he casts out demons by the prince of demons. And it's good, solid logic. I mean, you look at that and you say that, sure, any sort of army, which half of the army is fighting internally, uh, that army will not succeed. Any country, any kingdom that is divided, that is fighting internally, cannot stand. And if you, if you are any sort of um, student of history, then the idea of a house divided against itself is something that was used in a speech back in 18-something. Where was it? 1850-something. There it is. June 16, 1858, Abraham Lincoln, not yet president, was nominated to be a senator. Abraham Lincoln was a senator first, and then he went and became president, and he was nominated by his party on June 16, 1858, and he did a speech. And if you Google uh, Abraham Lincoln's speeches in 1858, there's one that will come up everywhere, and it is called the House Divided Speech. And the House Divided Speech was Abraham Lincoln telling the people what his plan was. And what his plan was, was that he saw America in 1858 as being divided and divided against itself. And he was going to, through his time as a senator and eventually as president, fix it. And the dividing aspect in 1858 was slavery. And Abraham Lincoln was absolutely against slavery. And he said, if, if this part of the country is favoring slavery, and this part of the country is favoring freedom and anti-slavery, that is a house divided. And when Abraham Lincoln tried to fix it, of course, you ended up with the Civil War where America went to war over the aspect of states' rights and slavery. But eventually we became an anti-slavery nation. Slavery is not part of the American system anymore. That was 
fixed by those in the 1800s. And so the idea of Jesus being some sort of satanic agent and Jesus being one who uh, is, is tricking people by casting out Satan is all they are left to do. They have looked at the miracles uh, religiously. They have looked at it through their laws. They have looked at it scientifically. They have given questions to people about how they're now able to walk and, and what did Jesus say. And they can't do it and so they attack his character and they attack his source. In 35, it then says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospels of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And so when Jesus is moving then from this house and moving through the towns, people who have gone and in northern Galilee looked at the archaeological evidence says that there was something like 3,000 little villages up there in the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Bible calls some of them villages and calls some of them cities. The way the Romans would divide these things is that if you were a city, you had a wall. And if you had a wall, it doesn't even have to be a big wall. It could be an old wall. If I can look and say, oh yeah, there's a wall and there's a gate then you're a city according to the Roman documents. If you are just a group of houses, if you are a group uh, perhaps around a river or perhaps around a farm, 20 or 30 houses, then you are a village. When you grow up and you build a wall around your village, then the Romans would call you a city. Taking the average number of people and what people have uh, discovered from Roman records and what people have discovered from archaeological evidence, there were about three million people in northern Sea of Galilee, in that whole northern uh, Jordan Valley around the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus is moving from village to village. Jesus is moving from town to town, from city to city, and Everybody that came, it says, healing every disease and every affliction. Now, it says he's teaching in synagogues. Some people today say, well, synagogue is just a Jewish church. But it's not really. Jews do not have church. Only Christians and New Testament Christians have a church. How did synagogues come into existence? If you recall the... Um, people who were living in and around Jerusalem during the time of 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, they fought against God. They worshipped idols. They did all manner of sin from the king down. And so God, as his judgment, brought in the Babylonians, took them all away to Babylon, and basically laid waste to Jerusalem, knocked down the temple. And so you have these thousands of Jews that are in Babylon. And if you're taken captive like they did back then, they would put you in a neighborhood. They would say, okay, 
you 20 people, you 80 people, you 1,000 people, you live over here and you do this job and they put them to work for the economy of Babylon. They weren't just sitting around all day. Well, when Saturday came, they looked around and there was no temple. Back in the day before Babylon, they would all get up and they would truck to the temple and they would do God things around the temple every Saturday, Saturday being the Sabbath. So they're in Babylon and they say there is no temple. In fact, most of the priests are dead. And so what do they do? And some very smart people said, we're going to meet at Jacob's house. So they picked somebody's house and everybody from the village came and gathered, had an assembly at this one house in Babylon. The word synagogue means a gathering or assembly. Okay, so that's simply what it means. And they developed a system of worship that did not involve the temple, that did not involve animal sacrifice, that did not involve the priests. And it was around the synagogue. And the way a synagogue service would work is that you would all get together and everybody would have an opportunity to share Moments of thanksgiving, very similar to how we um, ask people to share or give prayer requests. Theirs would be specifically about thanksgiving. And so people would just stand up and praise God for a new granddaughter. Praise God for a healing. Praise God that we have enough food to eat or whatever they wish. They would thank God for all the things that were happening. And the idea was that while they're in captivity, while they're away from home, if they focus on the good things that God is doing right here, right there, it would help them be a godly people and not blame God, but to keep their focus on God. They would then have a group prayer led by a rabbi. They would then read an Old Testament passage, and they would read it first in Hebrew then in Aramaic, Hebrew because the language it was written in, Aramaic because it was the common street language. And then somebody would be asked to exposit or explain the passage. This person would be um, usually a visiting person, a guest rabbi. Paul gives the explanation in the book of Acts about how he would go to a synagogue and volunteer. And he was recognized as a Pharisee. He was recognized as a leader in the Jewish community. So he would be allowed to teach from the Old Testament. And what would Paul teach? Paul would teach Christ and Christ crucified. What is Jesus teaching? It says he's teaching the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God. You have two occurrences or two levels of the kingdom of God. When I accept Jesus Christ and I am saved, I am immediately ushered into the kingdom of God. My situation on earth may not have changed, but I am spiritually, I am counted as part of the kingdom of God. Eventually, Jesus Christ is going to return, 
And when he returns, all sin will be destroyed. And when all sin is destroyed, the physical kingdom of God will be ushered in. First, during the millennial kingdom, where Jesus will rule on the old earth. And then you'll have a new heaven and a new earth that are kind of touching each other. And the true kingdom of God that spans heaven and earth will be instituted. And that's where we will live for all eternity. And so Jesus is telling them about this, telling them who God really is, not who the Pharisees say. And he's telling them uh, what God's plan is and what God is going to do. And people say that Jesus spoke as if he had authority, not like the rabbis and the priests who were guessing. And so Jesus is going from town to town, all these little towns, all these little villages, all these synagogues, because even if you only had 20 or 30 homes, you would pick one of those homes to be a synagogue, to be a meeting place, because you have the commandment, fourth commandment, to remember Saturday and keep it holy. And so even after they were released from Babylon and they came back, there was no real temple in Jerusalem until um, Herod came and rebuilt it. Ezra built a bit of it, and then uh, King Herod built the bigger structure, but people lived all over the Jordan Valley. They couldn't get to it, so the synagogue continued. And today, if you drive around, you'll see Beth Temple is usually the first two words of a name. Beth Temple something or other, that is a synagogue. That is where all the Jews will go next Saturday. They went there yesterday and they'll go there next Saturday because that's what Jews do on a Saturday is they go to a synagogue, study the Bible, have preaching, and understand who God is. Uh, one thing that they do not have that we do is they don't seem to sing a lot in a Jewish synagogue uh, situation. Uh, we developed singing in response to uh, what it says in the New Testament and Acts is that in the house churches, they would leave singing a hymn. And so singing is a big part of the Christian church experience. It is not for the Jews. And so Jesus is healing everybody and everything. There is never a record in Scripture of Jesus saying no, of Jesus saying I can't, of Jesus saying it's too hard. The reason we have the miracles presented as Matthew does is to remind us that Jesus can do anything. And Jesus does do anything. I can't make Jesus do things. I can't force God to do things for me, but God can and does do anything. He is omnipotent, all-powerful. There is no power that you can ask God about that he can't do. And what does that show us then? What is the audience that Jesus is talking about is that Jesus is talking about the kingdom He's saying this is who God is. This is what God is going to do. This is what, how God is going to offer forgiveness of sins. This is how God is going to offer eternity. And he says to prove what I'm saying is true, I'm going to heal all these people. 
I'm going to cast out these demons. I'm going to calm the storm so that I can look at that and say, he's got the power of God. Okay? Even today we can't seem to calm storms. Jesus called, calmed them with no problem whatsoever. So he has the power of God. Therefore, his words are from God. And that is the package that Jesus is offering. And people say, we've never seen anything like this. In other passages they say, we've never heard anything like this. That we are... Uh, people who are in the presence of God. And so people looking at Jesus and seeing the healing can then listen to his words and understand what the kingdom of God truly is and how you gain entrance into the kingdom of God. And a lot of the people in here who are saved, uh, who are healed, also receive saving faith. Uh, several of the people in the Gospels, it says specifically that they had faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus means they're saved and we're going to see them in heaven. I think it's, I think it's mind-boggling that I can read the story of two blind people that Jesus healed and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I will be and can be friends with them someday because the same Jesus that offered them salvation is offering us salvation today. And it's the same group. There isn't uh, this saved group and that saved group. It's all one really big saved group and from 2,000 years ago, I don't know their names, I don't know what they look like, but eventually I will. I will be able to have a relationship because I'll have all the time I need to get into a relationship with every single saved person back then and today. People that are being saved today, people that are being saved back then, and Elijah and Elisha, they're going to be there too. And we get to talk with them. And that's what salvation is. Is that Jesus is making a new and separate people. Separate from the world. Separate from the philosophy of the world. And from way back, Moses, Abraham, those kind of people are in it. As well as you are and I am. And this shall be a, that's why it's a party. That's why it's a festival in heaven. That'll last for thousands of years, no doubt. Jesus came to usher in a kingdom of God. And that kingdom of God is still adding citizens today. Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, we praise you for your healing and your power. And the fact that you showed that you, were, that you are God incarnate, walking the earth, healing every disease, healing every sickness, casting out every demon. And Lord, we praise you for that. And I pray that we would understand that you are someone who has the words of life for us, that we may be willing to learn them and live them and willing to tell them to all who seek. Lord, I praise you for ushering in the kingdom of God and pray that we would live up to it as we live every day. We ask all this through the blood of Christ. Amen.
Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 180 Llewellyn Boulevard, San Lorenzo, California. Our Sunday morning service is at 1045 a.m. Our website is livingfreetoday.org and our phone number is 510-278-2622. May God continue to bless you as you serve your King. God bless.